0: Welcome, everyone. I'm Joel Van Hoogen, and this is the Bread of Life. This radio ministry is sponsored by Church Partnership Evangelism and its local missions fellowship, the Bread of Life in Boise, Idaho. If you're looking for a place to give that is taking the gospel in direct and personal evangelism around the world, then consider Church Partnership Evangelism. You can learn more by going to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. As Jesus was being nailed to the cross, he prayed that the ignorance of those who were participating in his crucifixion may be removed, and that they may see their sin and their Savior, and so repent and believe in him, and find God's forgiveness. That's what he was praying for when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We're considering how the events of Christ's death were in part God's answer to that prayer. Matthew tells us that in the middle of the day, to signify the judgment that is falling upon the Lord Jesus on the cross, darkness falls over the land, all of the land, for three hours. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ began, we're told, at the third hour of the day, and he died in the ninth hour of the day. And this corresponds with our 9 a.m. in the morning and goes to 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And so what we're being told in our text here is at the sixth hour, that's at 12 noon, Something new and terrible took place. It tells us that starting at 12 noon and for three solid hours, darkness came over all the land. And this is not a natural darkness. This is something that's a supernatural dimming of the sun. And it says all the land. It doesn't say over the cross or over Golgotha. And so the implication is that this is over the region of Jerusalem. It could even be extensively over all of Israel. It actually could be understood as all of the earth. It's covered in a moment of darkness. And it was a darkness at that time that came at the point at which there should be the brightest light of day. Darkness for three solid hours. Maybe some of you were in Boise when we had our solar eclipse some while ago. And uh, our family went out and drove out on the desert. And We parked the car. There weren't any trees interfering with our vision or our view. And there were other people that went to parts of Idaho where it was supposed directly taking place, but it was dark enough. I have photos of our family as we're all sitting out on the bumpers of our car, sitting on the tailgates of our cars, watching this eclipse that took place. And it was kind of eerie. It was a little bit different. You know, the middle of the day for the sun to just become dark all of a sudden, and but it wasn't really dark, and and it didn't last too long. And then the sun came back out after, actually, just a few moments, and everything brightened up pretty quickly. That's not what's being described here. This is not some solar eclipse or lunar eclipse. Which one is it? Which one happens when the the moon gets in front of the sun? That's not what's being described here. This is the sun being diminished in its darkness, and it lasts for three, four hours. The meaning of this event is not explained, but for a moment... Could you place yourself in that crowd and tell me what you would conclude? As you're watching, you're watching darkness wrap around this event that you've come to witness and to see? A question you might ask, and it was expressed in the song that we sang, "Just Alas, and did my Savior bleed? Is this creation's own moral reaction to the destruction of its creator? The line is, well, might the sun and darkness hide and shed his glories in when Christ the mighty maker died? for man the creature's sin. John tells us of Jesus Christ that all things were made by him and without him nothing was made that was made. We could ask, is this what creation does when the light of life is being put out? Maybe so. And there is some poetic idea there that can be embraced and it's been written in the songs that we sing. But, but when the Bible refers to an occasion like this, it almost always is associated with the darkness of judgment. It's the darkness In the sun that God places as a sign that he is pouring out his judgment upon wickedness. The Jews were waiting for the Messiah to return. They were waiting for him to come and bring judgment upon an unjust world and the accumulation of the sins of an unjust world. And they anticipated the fulfillment of a Messiah would come and rain his judgment upon the earth and upon the wickedness of men and to fulfill the prophecies that were made by Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Joel and They understood that when that moment came and took place, and God brought his judgment upon the sin that accumulated upon the earth throughout all the nations, that God would submerge the earth in darkness. You can read about it. Take your Bibles for a moment, and if you can find Joel, I'll read to you Joel chapter 2, verse 31. You go to Joel chapter 3. But let me just read to you a couple of passages here. Joel chapter 2, verse 31 says this The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Here's what it says in Joel 3, verses 12 through 15. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. Isaiah 13 is just one of the places where Isaiah refers to the same event. In verses 9 through 11 of Isaiah 13, Isaiah writes this, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, To lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth. The moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and lay low the haughtiness of the terrible." Revelation chapter eight describes the final day of the Lord when he brings his judgment upon the earth, and it describes it in a series of trumpet judgments that are poured out, and the fourth trumpet is blown, and what takes place is a third of the light of the sun, and a third of the light of the moon, and a third of the light of the stars are dimmed and go out. It's this idea of judgment that's being rained down. God is deploring the imagery that takes place. God is making known that sin is being found out and that it's being accounted for and it's being judged. And his wrath is being poured out. And in this moment, God is making known that all this is taking place. All that wrath that will come at the end of the age, all of it now is being focused and coming upon the cross where Christ is suffering. He's suffering. And he's dying there. Now this had to be an unsettling Darkness. That came upon those individuals. They may have reasoned to themselves, according to what we read in Isaiah 53. We esteemed him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. They may have reasoned to themselves. He's suffering judgment. He's suffering the judgment of God. Because he was an unrighteous man. But why now? And why at that place? There have been many blasphemers before. Remember, they accused him of blasphemy. There have been other false messiahs. They accused him of being a false messiah. But why here now? Why this darkness and why so long? And Why so profound? Whatever their reasoning, whatever their thinking, this is revealing that something ominous and awful is happening. And they are unsettled. They are unsettled by it. There's a second thing that we need to see that takes place here. There is a cry of dereliction that rises up from the Lord Jesus. The silence that he suffers under in the midst of three hours of darkness at midday comes to a climax when the Lord Jesus cries out in anguish. He has said nothing for three hours, suffering in this dark way. And the words were clearly understood by them, by the way. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We read that they went on to mock him. Oh, he's calling for Elijah. That is about as deep an expression of the depravity of sin that is being revealed around the cross as they demonically delight in the destruction of Jesus Christ, the sinless one? Because they would have known. They would have known what they're saying. You know, when Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and he slapped his hand over his mouth almost because it was a revelation. It was spoke to him and it came to him out of nowhere. And Jesus said, that was revealed to you by my father who's in heaven. He's made this known to you. Well, in this occasion, when they say, oh, he's calling for Elijah. And they begin to jest. This is the peak of their mocking and of their scorn. and I wonder if later those words, as they began to consider really what the Lord Jesus had said and what it meant, those words of mocking and scorn, they wondered at what demonic force had taken over them and filled their words and filled what they said and coaxed them into such statements. Jesus has said, Eli, lie, lama It's taken from Psalm 22. We read it as our scripture reading. When we read our our Bibles and we have our scripture reading, we stand up and we say, you know, our scripture reading is going to be taken from Psalm 23. So, and everybody turns to Psalm 23. Well, they didn't didn't have numbers lining up what Psalm they were going to be reading. They would say, they'd heard it before in their synagogues. Our reading today is taken from the Lord is my shepherd. And they would read the first line. In the song, and the person, well, I know where to find that. And not only that, they'd heard it enough, they probably knew what the psalm was. They began to quote it out to themselves. They'd heard this before. Our reading this morning will be taken from the psalm, will be taken from eli Eli, Lama Sabachthani. It's the name of a psalm. A song that they knew and that they'd heard and that they understood. It's the psalm of David. It's a psalm that actually had informed in their minds a certain idea of its meaning. I think what we can understand from the rabbinics is that in their minds, this was a personification. This was a psalm that personified an individual's profound suffering as he goes through a physical suffering and public humiliation and death. But then in the end of the psalm, he comes out triumphant. And that's the flow of the psalm. And in the minds of the Jews, this was a personification of the nation of Israel's own suffering. They had been put into suffering in Babylon, and there they had suffered and had been humiliated and brought into death, seemingly separated from the place of God's worship, and yet God had heard their cry and He restored them, and here they are now on this occasion in the temple, the place where they give praise and worship to God, and they're thinking, is this is a psalm, this is a personification of the nation of Israel. This is a a psalm of God bringing us in destruction and judgment, but then taking us out and delivering us and bringing us into triumph. Listen what the individual speaking in the Psalm 22 says. After he comes through the horrors of death, he says, At the end of it, I will, after all is declared of his suffering, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly, and I will pay my vows before those who fear you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over all the nations. And so they knew the song. They had suffered as a people, and they had come back as a nation to the temple to worship God. It was about them. It was about them. Or so they thought. Until the Lord Jesus utters these words at the cross. And now, in that moment... At the end of three hours of dark judgment upon sin, Jesus makes Psalm 22 all about himself. The psalm must now be understood. It was a prophecy about him. The words he spoke of that first line would have sparked many of those individuals to fall out the whole song before themselves. I don't know if you had this happen to you, but somebody mentions a song and you know it, and it's beckoned from your youth. Your mind begins to trace through all those words, and you can repeat them, and you can sing them, and the melody comes to you, and that's what would have happened for many at that moment. The very moment at which those words were spoken, their minds would have begun to retrace that song, would have gone through their minds and their hearts and they would have been repeating it and stating it and even if they had a hard time at bringing the words to recollection because of the trauma of that hour and that moment when they returned to their homes that cloudy recollection of those words would have been brought back to them and they would have searched out their scriptures to remind themselves of what it was what was that psalm about and what were those words and as they read those words they would have seen that everything that was stated at the beginning of that psalm was like a subheading to everything they had just witnessed description of everything they just written. Let me read you some of the words from that psalm again. Think about it. If it's playing through your mind as he's on the cross, because he's just said it. In the middle of the mocking that's taking place there. Oh, he's calling out to Elijah. Don't give him any water. Let's see if Elijah will come and rescue him. The soldier says, well, let's see if Elijah will rescue him as he gives the water to him. Well, in our next broadcast, we'll look to see how Psalm 22 prophesies the death of our Lord most exactingly. This has been the Bread of Life. To learn more about our ministry, go to breadoflifeboise.org. And now until we gather around the scriptures again, may God bless you.